Chapter Two, Part Two, of the Voyage of the Beagle. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Voyage of the Beagle, by Charles Darwin, Chapter Two, Part Two, Rio de Janeiro. Everyone has heard of the beauty of the scenery near Botafogo. The house in which I lived was seated close beneath the well-known mountain of the Corcovado. It has been remarked with much truth that abruptly conical hills are characteristic of the formation which Humboldt designates as nice granite. Nothing can be more striking than the effect of these huge rounded masses of naked rock rising out of the most luxuriant vegetation. I was often interested by watching the clouds, which rolled in from seaward, formed a bank just below the highest point of the Corcovado. This mountain, like most others, when thus partly veiled, appeared to rise to a far prouder elevation than its real height of twenty-three hundred feet. Mr. Daniel has observed, in his meteorological essays, that a cloud sometimes appears fixed on a mountain summit, while the wind continues to blow over it. The same phenomenon here presented a slightly different appearance. In this case the cloud was clearly seen to curl over, and rapidly pass by the summit, and yet was neither diminished nor increased in size. The sun was setting, and a gentle southerly breeze, striking against the southern side of the rock, mingled its current with the colder air above, and the vapor was thus condensed. But as the light wreaths of cloud passed over the ridge, and came within the influence of the warmer atmosphere of the northern sloping bank, they were immediately redissolved. The climate during the months of May and June, or the beginning of winter, was delightful. The mean temperature from observations taken at nine o'clock both morning and evening was only seventy-two degrees. It often rained heavily, but the drying southerly winds soon again rendered the walks pleasant. One morning, in the course of six hours, 1.6 inches of rain fell. As this storm passed over the forests which surround the Corcovado, the sound produced by the drops pattering on the countless multitude of leaves was very remarkable. It could be heard at the distance of a quarter of a mile, and was like the rushing of a great body of water. After the hotter days, it was delicious to sit quietly in the garden and watch the evening pass into night. Nature in these climes chooses her vocalists from more humble performers than in Europe. A small frog of the genus Hyla sits on a blade of grass, about an inch above the surface of the water, and sends forth a pleasing chirp. When several are together they sing in harmony on different notes. I had some difficulty in catching a specimen of this frog. The genus Hyla has its toes terminated by small suckers, and I found this animal could crawl up a pane of glass when placed absolutely perpendicular. Various cicidae and crickets at the same time keep up a ceaseless shrill cry, but which, softened by the distance, is not unpleasant. Every evening after dark this great concert commenced, and often have I sat listening to it, until my attention has been drawn away by some curious passing insect. At these times the fireflies are seen flitting about from hedge to hedge. On a dark night the light can be seen at about two hundred paces distant. 
it is remarkable that in all the different kinds of glowworms, shining elaters, and various marine mammals, such as the crustacea, medusae, nereidae, and coralline of the genus Clytia and Pyrosma, which I have observed, the light has been of a well-marked green color. All the fireflies which I caught here belong to the Lampyridae, in which family the English glowworm is included, and the greater number of specimens were of Lampyris occidentalis. I am greatly indebted to Mr. Waterhouse for his kindness in naming for me this and many other insects, and giving me much valuable assistance. I found that this insect emitted the most brilliant flashes when irritated. In the intervals, the abdominal rings were obscured. The flash was almost co-instantaneous in the two rings, but it was just perceptible first in the anterior one. The shining matter was fluid and very adhesive. Little spots where the skin had been torn continued bright with a slight scintillation, whilst the uninjured parts were obscured. When the insect was decapitated, the rings remained uninterruptedly bright but not so brilliant as before. Local irritation with the needle always increased the vividness of the light. The rings in one instance retained their luminous property nearly twenty-four hours after the death of the insect. From these facts it would appear probable that the animal has only the power of concealing or extinguishing the light for short intervals, and that at other times the display is involuntary. On the muddy and wet gravel walks, I found the larvae of this lampyris in great numbers. They resembled in general form the female of the English glowworm. These larvae possessed but feeble luminous powers, very differently from their parents. On the slightest touch they feigned death and ceased to shine, nor did irritation excite any fresh display. I kept several of them alive for some time. Their tails are very singular organs, for they act by a well-fitted contrivance as suckers or organs of attachment, and likewise as reservoirs for saliva or some such fluid. I repeatedly fed them on raw meat, and I invariably observed that every now and then the extremity of the tail was applied to the mouth, and a drop of fluid exuded on the meat, which was then in the act of being consumed. The tail, notwithstanding so much practice, does not seem to be able to find its way to the mouth. At least the neck was always touched first, and apparently as a guide. When we were at Bahia, an elater, or beetle, Pyrophorus luminosus, seemed the most common luminous insect. The light in this case was also rendered more brilliant by irritation. I amused myself one day by observing the springing powers of this insect, which have not, it appears to me, been properly described. In Kirby's Entomology, Volume 2, page 317. The elater, when placed on its back and preparing to spring, moved its head and thorax backwards, so that the pectoral spine was drawn out and rested on the edge of its sheath. The same backward movement being continued, the spine, by the full action of the muscles, was bent like a spring, and the insect at this moment rested on the extremity of its head and wing cases. The effort being suddenly relaxed, the head and thorax flew up, and, in consequence, the base of the wing-cases struck the supporting surface with such force that the insect by the reaction was jerked upwards to the height of one or two inches. 
the projecting points of the thorax, and the sheath of the spine, serve to steady the whole body during the spring. In the descriptions which I have read, sufficient stress does not appear to have been laid on the elasticity of the spine. So sudden a spring could not be the result of simple muscular contraction, without the aid of some mechanical contrivance. On several occasions I enjoyed some short but most pleasant excursions in the neighboring country. One day I went to the botanic garden, where many plants, well known for their great utility, might be seen growing. The leaves of the camphor, pepper, cinnamon, and clove trees were delightfully aromatic, and the breadfruit, the jaca, and the mango vied with each other in the magnificence of their foliage. The landscape in the neighborhood of Bahia almost takes its character from the two latter trees. Before seeing them, I had no idea that any trees could cast so black a shade on the ground. Both of them bear to the evergreen vegetation of these climates the same kind of relation which laurels and hollies in England do to the lighter green of the deciduous trees. It may be observed that the houses within the tropics are surrounded by the most beautiful forms of vegetation, because many of them are at the same time most useful to man. Who can doubt that these qualities are united at the banana, the coconut, the many kinds of palm, the orange, and the breadfruit tree? During this day I was particularly struck with the remark of Humboldt's, who often alludes to the thin vapor which, without changing the transparency of the air, renders its tints more harmonious and softens its effects. This is an appearance which I have never observed in the temperate zones. The atmosphere, seen through a short space of half or three-quarters of a mile, was perfectly lucid, but at a greater distance all colors were blended, into a most beautiful haze, of a pale French gray, mingled with a little blue. The condition of the atmosphere between the morning and about noon, when the effect was most evident, had undergone little change, excepting in its dryness. In the interval, the difference between the dew-point and temperature had increased from 7.5 to 17 degrees. On another occasion, I started early and walked to the Gavia, or Topsail Mountain. The air was delightfully cool and fragrant, and the dops of dew still glittered on the leaves of the large liliaceous plants, which shaded the streamlets of clear water. Sitting down on a block of granite, it was delightful to watch the various insects and birds as they flew past. The hummingbird seems particularly fond of such shady retired spots. Whenever I saw these little creatures buzzing round a flower with their wings vibrating so rapidly as to be scarcely visible, I was reminded of the sphinx moths. Their movements and habits are indeed in many respects very similar. Following a pathway I entered a noble forest, and from a height of five or six hundred feet one of those splendid views was presented, which are so common on every side of Rio. At this elevation the landscape attains its most brilliant tint, and every form, every shade, so completely surpasses in magnificence all that the European has ever beheld in his own country, that he knows not how to express his feelings. The general effect frequently recalled to my mind the gayest scenery of the opera house or the great theatres. I never returned from these excursions empty-handed, 
This day I found a specimen of a curious fungus, called Hymenophilus. Most people know the English phallus, which in autumn taints the air with its odious smell. This, however, as the entomologist is aware, is, to some of our beetles, a delightful fragrance. So it was here, for a strongulus, attracted by the odor, alighted on the fungus as I carried it in my hand. We here see in two distant countries a similar relation between plants and insects of the same families, though the species of both are different. When man is the agent in introducing into a country a new species, this relation is often broken. As one instance of this I may mention that the leaves of the cabbages and lettuces, which in English afford food to such a multitude of slugs and caterpillars, in the gardens near Rio are untouched. During our stay at Brazil, I made a large collection of insects. A few general observations on the comparative importance of the different orders may be interesting to the English entomologist. The large and brilliantly colored Lepidoptera bespeak the zone they inhabit, far more plainly than any other race of animals. I allude only to the butterflies, for the moths, contrary to what may have been expected from the rankness of the vegetation, certainly appeared in much fewer numbers than in our own temperate regions. I was much surprised at the habits of Papilio feronia. This butterfly is not uncommon, and generally frequents the orange groves. Although a high flyer, yet it very frequently alights on the trunks of trees. On these occasions its head is invariably placed downwards, and its wings are expanded in a horizontal plane, instead of being folded vertically, as is commonly the case. This is the only butterfly which I have ever seen that uses its legs for running. Not being aware of this fact, the insect, more than once, as I cautiously approached with my forceps, shuffled on one side just as the instrument was on the point of closing, and thus escaped. But a far more singular fact is the power which this species possesses of making a noise. Mr. Doubleday has lately described, before the Entomological Society, March 3, 1845, a peculiar structure in the wings of this butterfly, which seems to be the means of its making its noise. He says, It is remarkable for having a sort of drum at the base of the forewings, between the costal nervure and the subcostal. These two nervures, moreover, have a peculiar screw-like diaphragm or vessel in the interior. I find in Langsdorff's travels, in the years 1803 to 1807, page 74, it is said that in the island of St. Catharines on the coast of Brazil, a butterfly called Februa Hoffmansegi makes a noise when flying away like a rattle. Several times when a pair, probably male and female, were chasing each other in an irregular course, they passed within a few yards of me, and I distinctly heard a clicking noise, similar to that produced by a toothed wheel passing under a spring catch. The noise was continued at short intervals, and could be distinguished at about twenty yards' distance. I am certain there is no error in the observation. I was disappointed in the general aspect of the Coleroptera. The number of minute and obscurely colored beetles is exceedingly great. I may mention, as a common instance of one day's, June 23rd, collecting, when I was not attending particularly to the Coleroptera, 
that I caught sixty-eight species of that order. Among these there were only two of the Carabidae, four Brachylytra, fifteen Rancophora, and fourteen of the Chrysomelidae. Thirty-seven species of Arachnidae, which I brought home, will be sufficient to prove that I was not paying overmuch attention to the generally favored order of Coleoptera. The cabinets of Europe can, as yet, boast only of the larger species from tropical climates. It is sufficient to disturb the composure of an entomologist's mind to look forward to the future dimensions of a complete catalogue. The carnivorous beetles, or carabidae, appear in extremely few numbers within the tropics. This is more remarkable when compared to the case of the carnivorous quadrupeds, which are so abundant in hot countries. I was struck with this observation, both on entering Brazil, and when I saw the many elegant and active forms of the Harpalidae reappearing on the temperate plains of La Plata. Do the very numerous spiders and rapacious hymenoptera supply the pace of the carnivorous beetles? The carrion feeders and Brachylytra are very uncommon. On the other hand, the Rancophora and Chrysomelidae, all of which depend on the vegetable world for subsistence, are present in astonishing numbers. I do not here refer to the number of different species, but to that of the individual insects, for on this it is the most striking character in the entomology of different countries depends. The orders Orthoptera and Hemiptera are particularly numerous, as likewise is the stinging division of the Hymenoptera, the bees perhaps being excepted. A person on first entering a tropical forest is astonished at the labors of the ants. Well-beaten paths branch off in every direction, on which an army of never-failing foragers may be seen, some going forth and others returning, burdened with pieces of green leaf, often larger than their own bodies. A small dark-colored ant sometimes migrates in countless numbers. One day at Bahia, my attention was drawn by observing many spiders, cockroaches, and other insects, and some lizards rushing in the greatest agitation across a bare piece of ground. A little way behind, every stalk and leaf was blackened by a small ant. The swarm, having crossed the bare space, divided itself and descended an old wall. By this means many insects were fairly enclosed, and the efforts which the poor little creatures made to extricate themselves from such a death were wonderful. When the ants came to the road, they changed their course, and in narrow files reascended the wall. Having placed a small stone so as to intercept one of the lines, the whole body attacked it, and then immediately retired. Shortly afterwards another body came to the charge, and again having failed to make any impression, this line of march was entirely given up. By going an inch round, the file might have avoided the stone, and this doubtless would have happened if it had been originally there. But having been attacked, the lion-hearted little warriors scorned the idea of yielding. Certain wasp-like insects, which construct in the corners of the verandas clay cells for their larvae, are very numerous in the neighborhood of Rio. These cells they stuff full of half-dead spiders and caterpillars, which they seem wonderfully to know how to sting to that degree as to leave them paralyzed but alive, until their eggs are hatched, and the larvae feed on the horrid mass of powerless, half-killed victims. 
a sight which has been described by an enthusiastic naturalist as curious and pleasing. In a MS in the British Museum by Mr. Abbott, who made his observations in Georgia, see Mr. A. White's paper in the Annals of Natural History, volume 7, page 472. Lieutenant Hutton has described a sphex with similar habits in India, in the Journal of the Asiatic Society, volume 1, page 555. I was much interested one day by watching a deadly contest between a pepsis and a large spider of the genus Lycosa. The wasp made a sudden dash at its prey, and then flew away. The spider was evidently wounded, for, trying to escape, it rolled down a little slope, but had still strength sufficient to crawl into a thick tuft of grass. The wasp soon returned, and seemed surprised at not immediately finding its victim. It then commenced as regular a hunt as ever hound did after fox, making short semicircular casts, all the time rapidly vibrating its wings and antennae. The spider, though well concealed, was soon discovered, and the wasp, evidently still afraid of its adversary's jaws, after much maneuvering inflicted two stings on the underside of its thorax. At last, carefully examining with its antennae the now motionless spider, it proceeded to drag away the body, but I stopped both tyrant and prey. Don Felix Azara, Volume 1, page 175, mentioning a hymenopterous insect, probably of the same genus, says he saw it dragging a dead spider through tall grass, in a straight line to its nest, which was one hundred and sixty-three paces distant. He adds that the wasp, in order to find the road, every now and then made demitour d'environ trois palmes. The number of spiders, in proportion to other insects, is here compared with England very much larger, perhaps more so than with any other division of the articulate animals. The variety of species among the jumping spiders appears almost infinite. The genus, or rather family, of Apera is here characterized by many singular forms. Some species have pointed coriaceous shells, others enlarged and spiny tibiae. Every path in the forest is barricaded with the strong yellow web of a species, belonging to the same division with the Apera clavipes of Fabricius, of Fabricius, which was formerly said by Sloane to make, in the West Indies, webs so strong as to catch birds. A small and pretty kind of spider, with very long forelegs and which appears to belong to an undescribed genus, lives as a parasite on almost every one of these webs. I suppose it is too insignificant to be noticed by the great Apera, and is therefore allowed to prey on the minute insects, which, adhering to the lines, would otherwise be wasted. When frightened, this little spider either feigns death by extending its front legs, or suddenly drops from the web. A large Apera, of the same division with Apera tuberculata and conica, is extremely common, especially in dry situations. Its web, which is generally placed among the great leaves of the common agave, is sometimes strengthened near the center by a pair or even four zigzag ribbons, which connect two adjoining rays. When any large insect, as a grasshopper or wasp, is caught, the spider, by a dexterous movement, makes it revolve very rapidly, 
and at the same time emitting a band of threads from its spinners, soon envelops its prey in a case like the cocoon of a silkworm. The spider now examines the powerless victim, and gives the fatal bite on the hinder part of its thorax. Then retreating, patiently waits till the poison has taken effect. The virulence of this poison may be judged of from the fact that in half a minute I opened the mesh, and found a large wasp quite lifeless. This apera always stands with its head downwards near the center of the web. When disturbed, it acts differently according to circumstances. If there is a thicket below, it suddenly falls down, and I have distinctly seen the thread from the spinners lengthened by the animal while yet stationary as preparatory to its fall. If the ground is clear beneath, the apera seldom falls but moves quickly through a central passage from one to the other side. When still further disturbed, it practices a most curious maneuver. Standing in the middle, it violently jerks the web, which it attached to elastic twigs, till at last the whole acquires such a rapid vibratory movement that even the outline of the spider's body becomes indistinct. It is well known that most of the British spiders, when a large insect is caught in their webs, endeavor to cut the lines and liberate their prey to save their nets from being entirely spoiled. I once, however, saw in a hothouse in Shropshire a large female wasp caught in the irregular web of a quite small spider. And this spider, instead of cutting the web, most perseveringly continued to entangle the body, and especially the wings, of its prey. The wasp at first aimed in vain repeated thrust with its sting at its little antagonist. Pitying the wasp, after allowing it to struggle for more than an hour, I killed it and put it back into the web. The spider soon returned, and an hour afterwards I was much surprised to find it with its jaws buried in the orifice, through which the sting is protruded by the living wasp. I drove the spider away two or three times, but for the next twenty-four hours I always found it again sucking at the same place. The spider became much distended by the juices of its prey, which was many times larger than itself. I may here just mention that I found, near Santa Fe Bajada, many large black spiders, with ruby-colored marks on their backs, having gregarious habits. The webs were placed vertically, as is invariably the case with the genus Apera. They were separated from each other by a space of about two feet, but were all attached to certain common lines, which were of great length, and extended to all parts of the community. In this manner the tops of some large bushes were encompassed by the united nets. Azara in Azara's Voyage Azara in Azara's Voyage, volume 1, page 213, has described a gregarious spider in Paraguay, which Walkenaher thinks must be a theridigon, but probably it is an apera, and perhaps even the same species with mine. I cannot, however, recollect seeing a central nest as large as a hat, in which, during autumn, when the spiders die, Azara says the eggs are deposited. As all the spiders which I saw were of the same size, they must have been nearly of the same age. This gregarious habit, in so typical a genus as Ipera, among insects which are so bloodthirsty and solitary, that even the two sexes attack each other, is a very singular fact. In a lofty valley of the Cordillera, near Mendoza, 
I found another spider with a singularly formed web. Strong lines radiated in a vertical plane from a common center, where the insect had its station, but only two of the rays were connected by a symmetrical meshwork, so that the net, instead of being, as is generally the case, circular, consisted of a wedge-shaped segment. All the webs were similarly constructed. End of chapter 2, part 2. Recording by Scott Robbins.